Genesis 22. As a Christian standing before the power of the Scriptures, it ought to engage our whole person. It ought to activate our minds. It ought to activate our wills. But it must activate our affections, our feelings. If we disparage and we diminish strong affections for God, we immediately lose our ability to rightly interpret the Bible. Perhaps most notably the Psalms, but certainly other areas of Scripture, that you can't read the text naturally and it not evoke deep affections within you. The reality is when God makes promises, when He saves people from certain death, or He acts in mighty ways, a a ho-hum response is tantamount to a smack in God's face. He doesn't deserve that. His acts do not warrant those kinds of responses. To respond to God and to His Word with a love that is from our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the whole person, this is the intended effect that God desires from us. Well, there are places in Scripture, like reading genealogies, or the holiness code in Leviticus, where this can be a real challenge. But then there are those places that draw us in with very little coaxing because they stand as supreme examples of the drama that is redemptive history. These moments capture our imaginations, our emotions, and and our hearts as well. And so I implore you this morning to not stop at the point of simple understanding of what is one of the greatest stories you will ever read in the whole of Scripture. Truly feel what you should feel in this text when it comes to Genesis chapter 22. And make no mistake about it, it is gripping. The writer of Genesis provides one of those supreme examples in the life of Abraham. And as is often the case of the biblical authors, they portray the lives of these key figures, especially the lives of the patriarchs, not as these static characters that have no variation to them, but as complex characters exhibiting great moments of of honor and respect and also great destruction in their foolish choices time and time again. But even with that being the case, a truthfulness on behalf of the biblical writers, there does typically emerge a, a general characterization, you might say, of certain men's lives. As one author notes, one thinks of Scrooge as stingy. One thinks of Sherlock Holmes as perceptive. But when it comes to the life of Abraham, the general characterization of this man was that he exhibited an obedient faith. Genesis 22 is actually a climactic moment in the book of Genesis. And certainly a climax in how the book presents Abraham as a whole. So let's set the story before we walk through it together in context. Beginning in Genesis 12, before we journey our way through to chapter 22. Well, Abraham, as we refresh ourselves on the life of this great hero of the faith, he was born in a place called Ur in ancient Babylon. 
He hears the voice of the Lord at age 75, telling him to leave his homeland, along with his wife Sarah and all their possessions and all those with them, for the land that God would tell him at a later time. Extremely vague, and yet great faith. God promises to make of Abraham a great nation, to give him land, and to make his name great, and to bless him. And through this one man, all the nations of the earth would be blessed as he has promised descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore and as incalculable as the stars in the heavens. This was the promise. And after a promise is given in chapter 12, chapter 17 speaks of a covenant God made leaving both parties in the covenant with certain obligations the chief of which being circumcision by every male of Abraham's house, which he immediately obeys. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, the seriousness of that covenant is graphically portrayed. God tells Abraham to divide a heifer, a ram, and a goat in half and to lay them opposite one another, each half along with various birds as well, lining, as it were, a a bloody alleyway. And we read the text says, As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And then... The assessment is made. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, what? (laughs) We just don't have categories for that. That is bizarre. And as bizarre as it sounds, of of walking in an alleyway of, of bloody animal parts sounds to our ears. This would have been actually a common practice in the ancient world. Whatever and wherever a regional superpower would make an agreement with a smaller kind of vassal state that they would come in as the the important big guys in the region and they would say, we'll protect you, we'll take care of you, we'll we'll be your government of sorts. And of course, you'll pay us taxes, right? There was this agreement. And by doing this ritual act, they were in essence saying, may that be true of me if I fail in any way to... Follow through on the obligations of the covenant. Scary, but graphic. Gets the point across. This is a a life and death sort of covenant being made here. So this covenant declared, may this be done to me if I fail to keep this covenant. What is shocking, though, about Genesis 15 description of this, this practice, that would have been commonplace, but what was unique about it is the fact that God alone, God alone, represented by the smoking firepot and the blazing torch, passes through the bloody alleyway alone. Not with Abraham by his side. As if to say this, I'm taking the full responsibility of fulfilling the terms of this covenant, God is saying. And this is sheer grace. When Abraham would fail to keep covenant, God would take it upon himself 
to pay the penalty for law-breaking. These are the categories with which the, the entire Old Testament is actually framed. To fail to get some sort of a grasp on covenantal understanding is, is to, to lack some serious handholds as you walk your way through, the, especially the beginning of the Old Testament. Later on, at the age of 100, God tells Abraham that his wife Sarah, who's 90 years old at the time, will have a child. And that child will fulfill God's promise to bless Abraham with descendants that will outnumber the stars. Abraham laughs, and then Sarah laughs, and then God actually fulfills what he says he'll do, and they name the kid Laughter, Isaac. While God showed such grace to Abraham's other son, Ishmael, who was born through Hagar, Sarah's servant, it was clear that Isaac was the chosen seed who would bless the nations and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and ultimately bring about the one who would crush the serpent's head, the promise given immediately after Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. So with this backdrop, how inconceivable it must have sounded to Abraham's ears that message that was given at the beginning of Genesis chapter 22. Let's consider now a a highly questionable word from the Lord in verses 1 and 2. We read together, And after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So immediately as the narrative begins, we are told that what God is up to. We're not hidden from that fact. We are clearly told what God is up to. He means to test Abraham's faith. Much like how Exodus 15 clearly speaks of God putting Israel's faith to the test after he delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea. Here, God means to test the genuineness and the authenticity of Abraham's faith. Now you might be thinking to yourself, does God test his children? Well, the book of James is really helpful to us here. James begins his letter by saying, count it all joy, consider it all joy, make an assessment about life and consider it a joyful thing when you encounter trials of every different flavor, size, shape that you can imagine. Of all kinds, consider it a joyful thing. Why? Nobody does that. That's crazy. Because you know something, Christian, You know something that those who do not bow the knee to God do not know. Or even if they know, they do not accept. They do not embrace. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces something. What is it? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, which brings about what? A perfect and complete Christian, lacking in nothing. Not sinlessness, but maturity, 
spiritual maturity, spiritual stability and strength. So our spiritual maturity is of great importance to God. Consequently, he allows and even brings about testing of various kinds so we might grow in steadfastness. He may not call us to obey in the same way Abraham was tested. Surely there is a measure of unrepeatability going on here. But as John Calvin writes on this text, the Lord indeed is so indulgent of our infirmity that he does not thus severely or sharply test our faith. Yet he intended in Abraham, the father of all the faithful, to propose an example by which he might call us to endure less formidable trials of faith. James uses Abraham as a hallmark of genuine faith, not because he merely professed Yahweh as Lord, though he did, but because when he was tested, what did he do? He obeyed. He heard the voice of the Lord, and he believed it, and he obeyed. James is also clear that God is not the author of evil, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. However, being led to a set of circumstances in your life in which God wants you to grow is an entirely different thing than him enticing you or luring you toward spiritual faltering. And, and sinfulness. Those are very different things. God is good. And in His goodness, He brings about testing for His children so we can know the joys of spiritual maturity as His children. Well, returning to Genesis 22, note Abraham's response when the Lord calls him by name. Here I am. This simple response by Abraham indicates a humble and obedient heart that's ready to simply trust and to obey. So this phrase becomes somewhat of a repeated marker. You'll see it three different times in this text. Somewhat of a marker throughout the story of Abraham, reminding us of his simple, open posture to the Lord's commands. Then, the absurd, the illogical, the shocking request comes. Take your son, your only son, only true son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham had waited decades for God to fulfill his promise of providing an heir who would carry on all the promises made to, to Israel, to him, of a surrounding land, of blessing, innumerable descendants. He had just obeyed the voice of the Lord one chapter earlier in chapter 21 by sending his other son, whom he still loved, Ishmael, to wander aimlessly with his mother Hagar in the wilderness of Beersheba. This was Sarah's idea, but the Lord said, may it be so. Listen to your wife, Abraham. I want that to happen. Virtual death sentence. How could God now be asking Abraham to sacrifice now his only son, fresh off of what just took place moments before? The one who God had fixed covenant promises. This was the chosen seed. What am I supposed to do with 
sacrifice him? Nonetheless, the call is clear. Leave Beersheba and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice Isaac at a location of my choosing, God says. Before turning the page, as we enter, as it were, the second act or or scene two in the story, don't miss a few things. Abraham's confusion is undoubtable. To this point in the book of Genesis, we see sacrifices naturally arising here and there as men such as Abel and Noah and others uh, offer sacrifices to the Lord, but never sacrifices involving children. In fact, later on, God will legislate as sin the abomination of child sacrifice among His covenant people. This is wickedness. Sadly, though, it would not have been uncommon for the pagan nations to sacrifice their children in that day and age in order to show their devotion to their gods. So it is in this sense that God is setting the stage to see, as it were, if Abraham has even the kind of faith of the wholehearted devotion prevalent among the pagans. But make no mistake, God will make it very clear by the end of this narrative who it is that provides the sacrifice. Don't miss, as the text quickly moves, Abraham's anguish. He was a dad. This is anguish to beat all. The Lord knows of Abraham's love for Isaac. His longed-for son of promise was to see an early death, and not in battle or, or from disease or in some kind of honorable way, but by the hand, the very knife of his own father. God had spoken, and he had put his finger on that which Abraham treasured most. Now, as you think about yourself, what does that look like for you? What has captured your heart, even something good like love for a child? And if God were to ask for it, would you struggle to release it to his care? where you and I would certainly stumble. Here, Abraham immediately obeys. We enter scene two in the story, verses three through ten. We see Abraham's faith-filled obedience. We read in verse three, So, what did Abraham do? He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the journey has begun from Beersheba to Moriah. A son, two servants, a donkey, and all the supplies necessary to build an altar to the Lord. The text continues, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. In spite of the excruciating demand of Yahweh's call to Abraham, it would appear that based on Abraham's words to his servants, that Abraham fully expects that he and the boy will return. Note that. More on that later. We continue reading. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. 
So with every step closer to that dreaded moment, Abraham could have succumbed to the fears in his heart. Perhaps he thought moments here and there. Why? Why? Why, Lord? There must be some other way. I don't don't perceive of the sense of any of this. But he pressed forward, fire and knife in hand. Now we hear Isaac, probably a young teenager at the time, speak for the very first time. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, once again, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Offering a sacrifice to the Lord must not have been a new experience for Isaac. This would have been something he would have seen regularly. The boy knew from watching his dad that in order to relate to God properly, something must lose its life. Abraham must have kept silent about God's initial call. But with utter confidence, Abraham responds to Isaac's question, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide. Whether Abraham knew it or not, he was restating the reality of God's covenant with him many years before. Yahweh walked through the bloody alleyway alone. He would provide a sacrifice of His choosing and His time, and that sacrifice would not nullify that covenant. Regardless of what was going to happen in Abraham's vantage point at this moment in time, he knew that covenant will not be nullified. I can trust God, even when life seems upside down. He had made this with Abraham, and by his own nature and character and promises, he would be true to it. The task was now to trust and to watch God work. And now we see the climax of this story's tension. So our our hearts begin to beat a little faster as we read verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, our hearts are pounding. Tears want to flow. We we hate the idea of what's about to take place. Can this really be happening? Abraham, well over a hundred years old at this moment, he watches his obedient son lay upon the altar, bound like a lamb. And Abraham's not looking to the right or to the left, like this is all one big play, and and he's looking for a missed cue. Like, now where's that substitute? Any moment now, come on, where are you? That is not what he's thinking about. As the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard writes, there he stood, the old man, with his only hope laying before him. But he did not doubt. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew that it was God the Almighty who was trying him. He knew 
that it was the hardest sacrifice that could be required of him. But he knew also that no sacrifice was too hard when God required it. And so he drew the knife. So how you feel about the text right now has actually more to do with your grasp on the gospel than you might realize. Mere indifference is to miss the heart of God. And at just the last moment, a new character arrives on the scene. We see scene three begin, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And what does he say? What he always says. Here I am. Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything with him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Once more, Abraham's consistent response, here I am. We are not given the details of Abraham's precise emotions at this point in the story. But perhaps Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, gets fairly close when she writes this. Abraham felt his heart leap for joy. He unbound Isaac and folded him in his arms, and great sobs shook the old man's whole body. Scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time, they stayed there like that, in each other's arms. The boy and his dad. Can you even imagine the relief? But what was Abraham thinking in these moments? What was he thinking? Well, Hebrews 11, the text that, we, that Josh read to us earlier, tells us what he was thinking. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in these moments of greatest pain, Abraham knew that even if he killed his own son, the Lord God had made that covenant, and it was not going anywhere. He had made him promises that could not be broken, could be broken if he would have walked through, but he didn't walk through. God's fulfilling every part of that covenant. His word is true. This God would solve this dilemma, even if it meant bringing back his son from the grave. Abraham was confident. What faith. And of course, because we know how the story ends, we cannot accuse God of, of calling for something that he knew never would have allowed, child sacrifice, as is sometimes hurled against Yahweh in this text. But who is the, the angel of the, the Lord that appears here, who steps in to save the day? Well, perhaps the angel of the Lord here is indeed a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to, to Abraham and Isaac, but we can't be entirely sure. But regardless, he speaks with the authority of God and he grants the approval of God based on Abraham's battle-tested faith. We continue reading in, in verse 13 here. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Not Isaac, but a ram. Not the child of promise, but a substitutionary sheep caught in a thicket by its horns. So this, this was not mere happenstance. Oh, what a coincidence. Wow, that sure works in our favor. That's wonderful. Not at all. This was God's provision for sacrifice. Abraham's heart must have been filled with gratitude. Can you imagine And God's heart filled with pleasure as he saw such unparalleled faith? Finally, the narrative ends with a second word from the angel of the Lord in verse 15. We read, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So the Lord reminds Abraham of their covenant that he had made and how he will surely bless him. He will surely make his name great. He will surely multiply his offspring and use him to bless the nations. The narrative ends as each character returns home to Beersheba. But the long-term payoff of this story is just beginning. As we look long through the, the tunnels of time in redemptive history, we see connections being made all over the place. Abraham's confidence in God's provision. In verse 8, God will provide a lamb, my son, becomes Abraham's memorial to the Lord of what he did accomplish in verse 14 as he names Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Or, as it also can be read, literally, the Lord shall appear. The Lord will provide. He will appear. So this mount, that this sacrifice was called upon by God, this mount would be ground zero for many more epic moments in God's dealings with His people. In 1 Chronicles 21, King David would plead for mercy on Mount Moriah before the angel of the Lord who stood ready to wipe out all of Jerusalem. And because the Lord had appeared to David there, Solomon chose that location as the very spot to build the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah. The mountain of, of the Lord, Mount Zion, as it is often referred to by the prophets, would speak of God's dwelling place both, both then and there, as well as in the age to come. But the sacred space that became Mount Moriah 
would find no greater purpose than to be the same location for yet another son who would obediently follow his father up a hill, carrying wood on his back and offering himself as the sacrificial lamb. Like Isaac, he he too would mediate God's blessings. But unlike Isaac, his father would follow through with the slaughter, causing his only beloved son to be torn apart so others might be declared righteous. In the person of Jesus, on Mount Moriah, God himself, as it were, would walk through the alleyway of blood, fulfilling the promise of the Abrahamic covenant by experiencing the bloody consequences of covenant unfaithfulness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 1 Peter 2.24 And just as God preserved Abraham's seed in Isaac on Mount Moriah, in Genesis 22, Jesus, as Abraham's ultimate seed, would finally and completely fulfill God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth by means of spreading the news of the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. And as Genesis, or as Galatians 3 instructs, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And if you are Christ, Paul writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Jesus Christ would enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, knowing that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, though, be raised. He would become God's supreme example, God's once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, mediating God's blessings for those who would repent and believe in the gospel. So what now? What do we do with a story like this? Standing where we do at this point in God's plan of redemption. What do we gain from this powerful, true story of Abraham's obedient faith at Mount Moriah? Well, first, believe in the gospel. If you are not a child of Abraham, meaning you are not someone who has come to terms with the sinfulness of your covenant-breaking heart, I urge you to yield to what your conscience knows to be true. Your need is to hear God's voice speak in the pages of Holy Scripture and like Abraham, respond with a faith that says, Here I am. Here I am. A demonstration of complete humility and obedience. This pleased God so much. 
you must come to believe the Bible's clear message that God can be approached only through sacrifice. Since He is holy, and we are not, this is always true. Yet come to believe that you can never sacrifice enough to earn His favor. His favor is found only through the new covenant brought about through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Do not be destroyed by God's justice on account of your sins, but find forgiveness and find nearness to God through the gospel of Christ. For those of us who are children of Abraham, we have repented of our sins, we have trusted and believed in the gospel. Grasp from this story the necessity of sacrifice. Let that linger in your heart. God does not ask worshipers to give Him things that they do not treasure. God does not ask worshipers like you and like me to give Him things that they do not treasure. God is not looking for that refuse box that's getting ready to make its way to goodwill tomorrow. As if that's the supreme thing that He wants from your heart. What do you treasure, Christian? Do you withhold it from Him? And do not, do not be surprised then if in His love for you He finds a way to take it away. So that we might be reminded that He alone is the greatest, most supreme treasure the human soul can ever lay claim to. He wants our hearts. Thirdly, trust in a sovereign God even when your perception of life appears completely upside down. It looks completely absurd or illogical, as was certainly the case with Abraham. Cry out to Him like the psalmist? Absolutely. Seek out friends for counsel and prayer? Most definitely. But when God brings testing and trials of various kinds, steady your soul with the life of Abraham. Look to this story. It is a gift to you. This story is to stabilize your walk with Him. Now you will not be able to see the resolution of your trial at the onset of whatever testing or trial you may be entering into. You may not even be able to see very clearly in the middle of it. We often lack the vision to know how to forecast the long-range benefits of whatever trial or discomfort we're in because of the, the fog that seems so heavy around us. But take this truth to heart. He is with you. He is with you. And He is calling you to trust Him. In fact, find great joy that it's not up to you to write the script of your life. You can trust Him. If you are His child, it matters not one bit if life seems turned upside down. Trust and obey your sovereign Lord who knows you and He knows your circumstances perfectly. You think that, that's the moral of the story? That's the moral of the story. Walking with God is actually far simpler than we make it out to be oftentimes. That is why faith like a child is so demonstrably beautiful sometimes. Simple trust. But lastly, dwell upon the costly love of God. 
and rejoice. Dwell upon, meditate upon the costliness of the Father's heart for you that He would not spare His own Son, His own beloved Son, what would offer Him up, and by His wounds you could be healed. Now what you do with that gift is incredibly significant. So often for many of us who have heard these stories or have familiarized ourselves with Christian verbiage long enough since we were three, four, five years old, little as we can remember, we grow used to them. We don't meditate on the incredible nature of these stories God has given to us. You must not let Genesis 22 with a hard-hearted demeanor fill your, your heart. I mean, how could you? God is no less of a father than Abraham. And to think that he followed through and slaughtered his sinless covenant-keeping son out of love for us We can't get over that. Never. Yes, this story is somewhat scary. It's sad and unpleasant at certain moments. But that's the nature of the gospel. If you sanitize all scary portions of the narrative that is your life, you must come to reckon with the greatest sorrow that humanity could ever face has been solved through the gospel of Christ. Allow it to grab a hold of your heart this morning. Arrest your attention in a fresh way. And know that the love of God for you is astounding. So may it soften our hearts, leading us to thankful worship to our Lord, who always provides. This text prepares our hearts. It it tills the soil. It, it prepares us to enter back into this very room next week and to remember that though great sacrifice has taken place, death has not won. Christ has conquered. And we live today because of the life, the resurrected life that we have in Christ. So as we conclude this morning, I'd like to do so a little differently. I'd like you to stand with me. I'd like for you to reflect in silence upon the word that you have heard from Genesis 22 this morning. And after a moment, I'll, I'll pray. And then we will confess that when, our, when we fear our faith, like Abraham's, will fail, Christ will hold us fast. So pray silently for just a moment. Oh God, you see our hearts. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Father, I pray that this powerful, memorable story would emblazon itself upon our consciences. It would showcase the very nature of the gospel. And that for those that are not trusting in it, they would be drawn to a God who keeps covenant alone. A God who always provides in His timing and in the way He alone can make possible. Help us to lay down our 
efforts to try to sacrifice to please him like the pagan nations of old offering their children to try to earn the favor of the gods. There is nothing more opposed to gospel truth than that very idea. Help us to have a posture like Abraham to simply say, here I am, God. I will do what you ask me to do. I will believe, I will trust in what you call me to believe in. And Father, I pray we would, we would leave the comforts that we know of our, our normal lives that can be so opposite of the sort of faith that you want us to live. I pray that we would trust in a sovereign God who sees all and knows all, and even when life as we would perceive it just looks so upside down, that we know we have stable footing at the foot of the cross and in the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to dwell on this amazing, beautiful truth and ultimately anchor and fix our hope in the new covenant provided through Christ. He is our hope. Even when our faith fails, we trust in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.